0: Receiving uh, this
1: message, we are Ken Jennings and John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early
0: 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost.
1: So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule.
0: This is the Omnibus.
1: accessed entry 162.EC0911 certificate number 24968 the bugatti chiron
0: the chiron has 10 radiators that's more than i've got in my apartment and then there's the water pump which sends 200 gallons of water a minute around the engine that could brim a bath in 12 seconds I know as a young guy in America, you probably at some point had to care about race cars or fast cars or cool cars, didn't you? Or did you never care? Honestly, like growing up as an
1: expat kid in South Korea Mm. kind of did a number on my love of American muscle cars just because there was no way to see them. Right. Seoul was like a million... Hyundai Pony twos, which was the car they made before they broke the American market. Was it a two cylinder car? Yeah. I think that's why it was the Pony Mm two. It was a big improvement over the one cylinder Pony (laughs) one. So like, you know, in movies, like if I was watching Mad Max or American graffiti, I could start to see that there was a thing called car culture, Mm -hmm. but I was pretty isolated from it. And I assume that was not true of a young John Roderick
0: in the North American West. Well, it's uh I mean, I don't know exactly where a love of cars comes from. My parents both were interested in cars. They weren't car collectors, they didn't have cool cars necessarily, but my mom talked about cars, my dad talked about cars. They both they could identify any car on the road by brand and model. What
1: was the car you had as a kid? What was your make and model of your childhood car?
0: Well, so when I was born, my mom and dad each had matching Chrysler convertibles. Wow. And, um, this was in the sixties. Did they win them on a game show? (laughs) No, but I think, I think my mom got one and my dad liked it so much. He got a matching one, but my mom always, her entire life spoke or my entire life spoke with pride that her Chrysler was, I guess it was, I guess they were Plymouths. I guess they were Plymouth Furies. Mm. And, uh, she always said that hers was hotter. Hers could outpace my dad's, and that that drove him crazy. Was there any kind of a mechanical reason for this, or did she just have a theory? They had no. They had matching engines, but they raced. They Uh-oh. raced
1: them. <laughs> Your was there a like a, a, a winsome teenage girl to to drop a flag or leather jacket?
0: No, we lived in rural Kitsap County, and I think there was a stretch of road that was you know where they could look out into the distance and see three miles along or whatever, and they just set them up and. You know, they're convertibles, so they're yelling at each other, gassed, they, gassed them.
1: They would just drive up to the point where you were conceived <laughs> and have a three-mile drag race from
0: from future John Point. That's right. I think, you know, she tells a famous story of me being in the back seat of the convertible, and she was having such a good time driving around on some summer day that she forgot I was back there and had forgotten to cover me with a blanket or whatever so that I was just sitting out <laughs> four months old just baking in the sun. But she said she grabbed me and, uh, you know— I'll, freaked out that I had been burned and I was just fine. And in fact, my skin is very resistant to sunburning. So maybe. That's what you got to do. Parents of the future. Put your kid in the back of a 65 (laughs) Plymouth Fury and uh, hit the roads of Kitsap County. I
1: think this does explain the difference between us because when I was a kid, my parents drove a a Pinto, Mm. famously. uh, The worst. Ugly and dangerous car. Right. And But then they upgraded to a uh, this black Mercury Zephyr that they got a deal on with this amazing, it had bench seats in this amazing pimp red uh-huh. color, this super bright, so it's this black car with this bright red interior. And I feel like they were going to get vanity plates that said R2-D2 for the little blue Pinto and Vader for the big black <laughs> Zephyr, but...
0: Boy, this does speak volumes about the difference between you and me.
1: Yeah, my parents were not drag racing. They were probably hurrying to see who would like watch Masterpiece Theater faster right. or something. You drive R2 today, I'm going to drive Darth. <laughs> well, you know, the one gimmicky kind of car thing I remember is in Korea, they, the military had some deal where you could get Hondas real cheap. Hmm. So they bought a Honda Accord at, uh, via the army base, but for some reason it was the European model. So for one thing is that the windows would, the window... Buttons would say like ferme and ouvert mm. instead of open and close. Excellent. And like the only other thing I remember is it had, I'm sure E and F were wrong on the gas tank too. I'm sure it was whatever the French <laughs> letters for that are, but also it had windshield wipers on the headlights. And that was something that we yeah. kind of fetishized like, Hey, we've got this sweet car. It's got, it was a Accord. It was like an 86 Accord or something. But it had windshield wipers on the headlights. Cause you got to have that. That's cool. I don't know what, the, what is that actually for? Like what kind of opaque stuff will get on your headlights? I guess oh,
0: mud and if you're out snow drag and racing
1: stuff? in Kitsap.
0: I mean, I think, uh, I mean, growing up in Alaska, the whole front of your car would get caked with muddy frozen snow garbage in the uh, in the spring.
1: Yeah, this was for some Scandinavian and German markets, right. some, some part of Where the Where they speak French. Full of snow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Fermé, Slav.
1: Wait, how does that work with European models? Do they have to make a different one for every language? Or if you're in France, do you just live with a... Uh, Well, that's, I think... English
0: or German... I think that's what's behind uh, the sort of standardization of the symbology of uh, cars. If you buy a Volkswagen, for instance, there are no words. It's just, here's a picture of a window with the defrost symbol. You know, it's all done by color and graphic rather than words.
1: We're like regressing as culture. You know, we had hieroglyphics where it w- you would see a guy sitting down on a toilet. Right. And then we invented the words guy and toilet. But then thousands of years later, we're just back to a little
0: glyph of a guy sitting down on a toilet. Well, it's because no one adopted Esperanto, which they should have done.
1: We could have had all Esperanto automobiles. <laughs> we'll talk about Esperanto, I'm sure,
0: at sometime in the future.
1: We'll talk in Esperanto sometime in ah, the future. Well done. But before then, we will do an entry about it.
0: But I, cars played a big role in in my family. Now that I think about it, my mom uh, was a member of a sports car club in Ohio in the early '50s, back when sports cars were all MGs and you know Austin Healy's.
1: Would she do like little road rallies yeah, on the yeah. in the midwestern roads? Yeah,
0: they'd go from Columbus all the way up to Michigan and back, and uh, and sports cars were all foreign until the introduction of the original, I guess, Corvette and Thunderbird in the fifties, which were the first American sports cars. And she said that her foreign sports car club really turned their noses up at these gauche American attempts, um, because Americans, uh, the American idea was cram a big motor in a small car, mm-hmm. which was antithetical, I guess, to the British idea, which was make a small light car and have a small light engine in it.
1: So there was kind of this idea of continental style and uh, sleekness that, that Detroit couldn't match.
0: Yeah. The difference, I mean, the, um. Just like with fashion, I guess, or. Sure. The, the difference in their genes, in their whole concept, uh, between European and, and American sports cars was radically different and they were in competition with each other for decades. Um, the American car companies tried desperately to, uh, build cars that would, compete with European cars on, in European car racing circuits. You know, here in America, NASCAR is our big car racing game, and it's just a giant oval where cars just continually turn to the left. And the drivers turn to the right, politically. That's right. And their fans do too. Uh, but we
1: don't, yeah, we don't care about Formula One.
0: Uh, no, we never do turns. It's just one, it's a long straightaways and then a big left-hand turn on both ends of the track. Whereas Formula One and and European-style racing of all different styles is a track that runs around and makes turns to the left and right. And, has and,
1: and who would prefer a big oval in the middle of... Gatlinburg, Tennessee or whatever to driving through Monte Carlo or, you know, it just seems so much more romantic, the European idea of racing.
0: Well, they have different origins and American car racing has its origin story in bootlegging um, where bootleggers would outrun the revenuers by taking sleeper cars, which just looked like normal, regular sedans. And they would cram huge cop motors in them and juice up the brakes and make them early performance cars and they would outrun the cops just through brute force and knowledge of the back roads. So the early stock car races were these, you know, it's called stock car. They would just take cars off the showroom floor, jam them up with um, a bunch of hot rodding, and then just take them out and try and beat each other. Brute brute speed.
1: But is there any logistical reason you couldn't have a, a speed NASCAR style race on a... On nope. a course, on a track.
0: No, they should have done it right because it's sure. much more akin to bootlegging. Right,
1: it's like dun, 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 dun. the
0: problem with it is that American car suspension technology was—I mean, if you put a huge motor in it, you're basically hurdling rather than doing any kind of finesse driving. And so it was—I mean, if you tried to take a, say, for instance, a '64 Chevy with a huge a V8 in the front and turn it, you know, take it through twisty, hilly roads, you're going to go off in the, you're going to go off in the ditch because it just, you, you, the steering and the, and the suspension couldn't handle it. And it's the difference why European cars use smaller motors and we're lighter and we're lower to the ground and we're built for turning as much as anything. I guess the oval track is more, makes it gladiatorial. Right. It's like we're, we were coming to watch
1: the, you know, the Roman chariot race in the Coliseum. It's more of a Ben Hur kind of,
0: are you not entertained vibe? Right. You hit a top speed. And then, I mean, a big part of the thrill of NASCAR is just waiting for them to crash. Uh, and their big fiery crashes. Cause it's a, and you know, in uh, European racing, they slow down to get around those corners. I mean, it's a, it's as much a, it's, m- a, I guess, I won't say more skillful because I think NASCAR drivers are also skillful, but it, there are, it, just uses different muscles and and different parts of the brain. So American cars couldn't really compete against European cars. uh, And it became a real bone of contention for the Ford motor company who really wanted to prove because Ford had a big European uh, car manufacturing arm. The, the, the Ford company was also making cars in Europe and it was a point of pride for car makers and Ferrari was consistently winning Le Mans, um, Le Mans, the long distance endurance car races and American cars just couldn't break in. And so Ford ended up designing this car, the GT40, which is even to this day, a very beautiful car. And they poured money into it. They just beat their heads against the wall, trying to beat Ferrari and Ferrari just year after year kept schooling them. And finally the GT40 kind of legendarily beat Ferrari. And, and it was a big, you know, a big moment in the 1960s. And it was, if you, I, I don't know why there isn't a, a feature film starring Tom Cruise about that competition because it was extremely glamorous. This was the age when everyone had amazingly cool sunglasses on all the time and their suits were really tailored and the cars are so beautiful. Um, it's very like cinematic, this competition.
1: I guess it does reflect something about the difference between America and Europe that we were in these, you know, incredibly powerful, but kind of large, unwieldy, (laughs) heavy, you know, not unlike our bodies. Uh, Whereas the Europeans were smaller, sleeker, more agile, faster, more stylish.
0: And it has a lot to do. It has a lot to do just with the design of our cities and roads, right? I mean, European cars were interacting with cities that were laid out 500 years before with narrow streets and uh, narrow, hilly, windy, non-grid Design towns. So if you were going to make a sports car that was going to drive through Switzerland or Italy, you would, it would need to be able to go both around corners agilely and also through pretty narrow streets. Whereas America was the wide boulevards of Indianapolis yeah, that, we right. keep, that we keep I mean romancing about. Those cities were laid out already with the idea of horse-drawn carriages and ultimately I mean cities like Spokane, Washington and I think this is true in Utah too where the actual city was platted with the requirement that you be able to turn a team of horses around in mid block.
1: That's why downtown Salt Lake still has these big wide streets, big huge blocks. Don't you know, if somebody at your hotel in Salt Lake says, "Yeah, the restaurant's just a block away." You're still going to be walking.
0: Right, it's a half a mile. Minutes, yeah. <laughs> well, and in in Spokane, I mean, you could drive, I think car you could drive just down a neighborhood street six cars abreast or more whereas you do not want to take a, a an
1: american suv or something onto the cobblestones of Trastevere in
0: Rome no if you're if you're driving a 1969 cadillac eldorado to Mont Saint Michel i think you're <laughs> going to have to park it at the at the lower lot <laughs> uh, and so it's are uh, design philosophies that go back to the very beginning and i think americans were not super interested in European sports cars until the 60s and these glamorous, uh, Ferraris. And you know, the, the Shelby Cobra, the famous American hot rod where, uh, the Shelby company in cooperation with Ford took a British car. Um, the AC Ace was a little light, small engined little, you know, six cylinder British kind of wind around your, on a Saturday kind of British sports car and, um, a guy in California by the name of Shelby took it and put a giant Ford V8 in it and turned it into, I think what is widely regarded as an incredibly fast, brutal and like v- vicious, dangerous, ultimately like super now collectible car.
1: The teen killer. The Shelby Cobra.
0: <laughs> His name was Carol Shelby and he was, he also customized Mustangs. He's still still pretty widely renowned in the sports car world, American sports cars.
1: Was a lot of this kind of the, I guess the James Bond influence where the default cool thing of the sixties was a, I just think of the beginning of the prisoner. where He's driving this little tiny sports car through London. And it looks like he's about 18 inches above the ground in this thing.
0: Yeah. And this was an era where design really mattered. I mean, these cars, which are now regarded as the most beautiful cars in history, they were changing the designs every a year or every other year. And when you compare that to now, when a car company develops the Ford Ranger or whatever, and they make it for 25 years, it's kind of miraculous that so many beautiful cars came and went in the fifties and sixties, both in America and the, and in Europe. And then we just decided, nope. Yeah. We just figured out like, oh, we could just keep making this car over and over for 20 years and people keep buying it? It's like the Pinewood Derby. You're like,
1: wait a second, that little triangle car won again. I didn't have to do all this shaping. Yeah, right. You just
0: cut the, cut the block in this half. It just look like cheese. <laughs> Why didn't anybody tell me? It's very much, I think, uh, you know, it's a the mass production model and the understanding that, oh, the Ford Taurus keeps selling. People don't really care. And part of that is after the energy crisis, yeah. cars became much more utilitarian. They weren't exciting anymore because they didn't perform very well. A lot of the energy crisis restrictions on cars, I mean, Europe didn't have those. And so in order to import cars from Europe, they had to jury rig these extra bumpers and limitations on their performance in order to meet American requirements. And that also began a kind of period, the 1970s were a period where European cars demonstrably performed better than American cars, which were choked by uh, environmental and safety regulations. Boo. Boo, oh. environmental regulations. But also American. Just Ameri- put your baby in the back seat. It'll be fine. <laughs> Cover them with a blanket or don't. Uh, but also American car manufacturing quality was declining precipitously. Mm-hmm. Everyone agreed that those were years where American cars weren't very well made and European cars were very well made, especially German cars. I mean British cars famously had bad electrical systems and were and in the seventies became pretty shoddy themselves. But German cars had a kind of, I guess, stereotypical precision and Prussian Teutonic yeah, strictness. And and a lot of the German car companies are located in southern Germany, Bavaria and Really? Yeah. I yeah, it's true. you'd think those guys would be
1: screw-ups at the beer garden. Sure,
0: a little bit drunker than your northern Germans, but they're also, they like to go fast.
1: They're, uh, they're Sergeant Schultzes, not Colonel Klink's. Who do you want making make in your car? A Schultzer or a Klink? <laughs> but they are still Germans, so they really are precise. And That's an era we haven't really got out of. I think of many, many millions of people, your average customer, just thinking about cars in a utilitarian way. Maybe just because it's, a, it's just such a part of the fabric of life now. It almost seems old-timey to fetishize a car. It'd be like, be like fetishizing your
0: uh, blender or something. It is strange. And in fact, the hot rod cars that are made by American manufacturers now, a lot of them are throwbacks, um, design wise, style wise. Mm-hmm. The new Mustang, the new Dodge Charger, and Challenger, their design influence is really taken from the cars of the 1960s. They almost look like tributes. And those cars are still muscle cars, they're built around the idea that you put a big motor in. And that that propels the car down the road. As opposed to a Porsche, which is still relatively light and built to handle rather than just to power. Now, all the cars that are made now are very different than the cars of the 60s and 70s. They all use tremendous new technologies. Um, Electronics. And braking systems that do a lot of the work a four-wheel drive traction systems where each wheel is independently sensing whether or not it's getting traction. I mean, it's yeah. The more cars do for you, the less
1: skilled the driver is. And that's why we care less about handling, I guess, you know, nobody wants to
0: buy stick anymore. Well, some people do. My daughter's mother really won't drive a car without a stick shift.
1: Well, I assume that's what we're going to talk about today is the (laughs) the vanishingly small population of people that still wants uh, a sports car a performance car.
2: get 2 pounds of ground beef and 2 packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com/iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com/iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout.
0: Well, now something happened in Europe right around this same period, which was uh, and I'm talking about the mid to late 60s, which was the Consumer supercar. People loved these racing Ferraris so much they wanted to drive them themselves. They wanted to have them on the streets, and there were and Ferrari started to make cars for mass consumption. And car companies like Lamborghini and and Porsche mm-hmm. uh, were were venturing into this realm of cars that could go really fast. Uh, but really fast using a kind of European philosophy. It was brute strength, but also sleek design and great handling. It wasn't just a case of like beat everybody into the ground, but.
3: Um,
1: and there's th- no reason as a lifestyle Factor. there's no reason you would have to go that fast, as fast as a race car driver. It really is more of a statement, I guess. It's a statement. I can if I want to.
0: But in the German Autobahn system, there is officially no speed limit, Mm. or wasn't for a long time. And so if you were a skilled driver, you could legitimately uh, travel the roads at 160 miles an hour. And it was, it's a form of European machismo that's different from the American style of roll up your sleeves and be out in your front yard, working on your Dodge charger. It's much more precise and, um, and in a way hand built the, uh, the Ferraris and Lamborghinis still, you know, were made in small shops in small numbers. And a lot of those pieces were hand filed, an elderly Italian
1: man with a mustache and a hammer, or something.
0: Right, and that is a legacy of European car making back to the early days, which brings us to the Bugatti mark. Um, the Bugatti company was who was Bugatti. Uh, Bugatti is the was the brainchild of a of a man named Ettore Bugatti, who was an Italian, uh, but who started his car company in. What at the time was a German town, but it was in the Alsace region of what is now France. It's an Italian
1: working in France, which is now Germany.
0: No, an Italian that was working, that built a car company in what was then Germany. Oh, and is now France. And is now France, because the Alsace-Lorraine... A uh, region of France was one that was contentiously passed between Germany and France. I feel like we times.
1: talk about Alsace and Lorraine in the omnibus so much. It's think of all the tension it's building in the future. When will they finally <laughs> do the entry
0: about Alsace and Lorraine? Well, and uh, what's crazy, of course, is that in the future, Alsace Lorraine could be Alsace lorrainistan It could be racist. Part it's problematic. Of, uh, it could be part of Germany again. It could be part of France. Who knows what? It's, how it's going to end up?
1: Bugatti had to overcome a less sexy name than a lot of European marks. His name's not Ferrari. It's, to our ears, it sounds kind of like bug or booger, but oh, the car.
0: Interesting. <laughs> like I you, had never thought of that. You
1: think that Bugatti is sexy because the cars are sexy, but the name is not sexy. Like it's had to,
0: it's had to reshape that word. All, yeah. Although, I mean, from a European standpoint, Bugatti may be uh, one of the most beautiful names anyone has heard. Like if Boog Powell went to Europe, like to them, that's like (laughs) the most
1: mellifluous thing. It's like Sophia Loren. I guess they're owned by Volkswagen now. So, you know, they make
0: bugs and boogs. That's right. Uh, Maybe that we think of the bug. Well, that's an English transliteration, right? (laughs) The the Volkswagen is, the Volkswagen bug was called the, I don't know what the German word for sewing machine is. Is that true? It was called the sewing machine? No, that's just what my mom called them because she was contemptuous of them because they sounded like sewing machines. (laughs) My whole life, my family referred to Volkswagens as sewing machines. Uh, But Ettore was born in Milan and he was one of these sort of early adopters uh, back when you could become a car builder just because, I mean, the Wright Wright brothers were building airplanes and Bugatti was building race cars. Uh, so he began his automobile company in Molsheim, which is this town in Alsace. And he was very successful in racing in in the European style. And he, you know, he made several iterations of race cars that won European championships. And they were, they were so refined, they were so mechanically, so hand-built that they made a motor that didn't even require gaskets. It was <laughs> so, they had hand-sanded the cylinders so precisely that the pistons could just move with no gasketing up and down through the cylinder. It's pretty precise for the for the day, right? They didn't have, like, computer machinery. Sure, that's what's funny back then is that that was your seal of quality,
1: just a, a guy in a machine shop making a car. That's going to be a good one. Yeah, right, like a, like a
0: car that just is, you know, like, so detailed. And some of those cars uh, are, st- I mean... Most of them, in fact, are incredibly collectible to this day. The Type 35 became, like, their signature model of the era, the pre-war era. And, you know, a, a Type 35 now in good condition is, is a, you know, worth millions of dollars as a collector's car. And I'm sure they all still run incredibly well. Uh, right, because, you know, they're still handmade. And, you know, Saturn V rockets were handmade, but I don't think any of them still fly. <laughs> uh, these cars, you know, they're. <laughs> I
1: feel like that's more that's more of a Dr. Mengele thing, where they have not been given the opportunity.
0: You that's know? right. Like, you could still light one up, I'm sure. I don't know. I don't know if it would shake apart. But the Type 35s are treasured, and if you find one in a barn, uh, you just became a very wealthy person. Uh, but the Bugatti company did not survive long past the end of World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, Ettore had a son who died prematurely. And then he died in 1947, and they're just what it was a it was a labor of love, kind of a he was the figurehead and the soul of the company, and Bugatti just went away, and they became kind of a legendary car company of the pre-war years. The cars were treasured and collected, but it was a a done deal. I didn't know that this was a a resurrection, yeah, like, like the. I
1: don't know, the Cleveland Browns or the, or French toast crunch, you know, <laughs> I didn't realize
0: there was going to be an interregnum here. There was. And in fact, one that lasted 40 years where Bugattis were not manufactured during this whole period of, uh, Ferrari Lamborghini dominance of the Italian sports car market. And, um, and not- there were, go ahead. It sounds like there's not much connection between the the you know where they're trading
1: on the goodwill of the name you know in forty years there's not going to be any kind of institutional
0: memory or you know mechanical legacy right? Well, um, no mechanical legacy. Although there is a strange uh, there is a strange connection, and I'll get to it in a second. Um, But uh, in 1987, a man named Romano Artioli, who was an Italian businessman, who was like a Ferrari dealer. He was a big, uh, I guess he had the largest Ferrari dealership in Italy at the time and was kind of one of these like Richard Branson types, hot rodder.
1: Nobody can see it, but you're kind of, you've got your index fingers out and you're kind of,
0: I'm making finger guns, which is the international symbol for like Wheeler dealer. (sighs) Italian Wheeler dealer, always doing the finger guns. He found the, you know, the owners of the Bugatti name, uh, which was presumably was, was still held by someone from the family or some sort of intestate group of shareholders. I hope it's some louche playboy
1: type. uh, I don't think so. He had to sober up some kid by tossing water (laughs) on him and getting him to
0: sign something. (laughs) Maybe so. Uh, But he acquired the rights to the Bugatti name and decided he was going to resurrect it as part of this, you know, 80s fascination with Italian sports cars. As you probably recall uh, Magnum P.I. drove a Ferrari. Right. Um, the uh, Miami Vice guys had a sort of famous reproduction of a Italian sports car. It was very popular I- uh, of the moment. And Lamborghini's, the Lamborghini Countach was on the wall of every single college kid in America. Right.
1: Lots of talk in my elementary school about, you know, Ferrari versus Porsche. And you were supposed to have an opinion and posters. And I'm sure I was the kid being like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Me yeah, too. Totally. The, the Ferrari,
0: the uh, two cylinder pony <laughs> is my contribution.
1: I feel like I do have some kind of face blindness with cars where like I could look at side by side, you know, two sports cars of totally different makes. And if they were both red, I would be like, um,
0: uh, really you'd be confused.
1: Yeah, I, I just don't have a memory for the, uh, I, maybe I don't know what the design factors are, so I don't know what I'm looking
0: at. It's like listening to classical music. Hey, these all sound the same. <laughs> and and sadly, it's a thing that is you know kind of baked into my DNA. I'd look at any car manufactured between 1930 and 19... 19- ninety-nine, I guess, and I would be able to tell you what it was, even at a distance traveling at speed.
1: Well we've talked about how you um you valued kind of an expertise mm-hmm. with objects. You know, you wanted to feel like uh, you know, you knew what the good ones were, whether it was cars or guitars. And this was kind of your uh, you know, means of self-confidence.
0: Yeah, even right? knowing what the bad ones were was intriguing, knowing why they were bad. Sure. Like the Yugo was famously an a car imported from the last vestiges of Yugoslavia. It was imported just so Johnny Carson could make jokes about it. Right, and it was based on a Fiat. I mean, it was just manufactured kind of shoddily, and I don't think it was any worse than a Pinto. No, it was probably worse than a Pinto. But so Artioli invested a lot of money in Bugatti in resurrecting this car company, and he built a giant, beautiful factory in Campo Galliano in Italy, Mm -hmm. and they started working on this car, this new... Bugatti that was going to reclaim the glory of its former you know the the its former glory. And uh they developed this car called the EB110 which was a supercar of its day and a beautiful and fast sports car and they manufactured this from 1991 to 1995. Uh and i famously the the formula 1 driver Michael Schumacher bought one it was in the car magazines of that era. This was one of the coveted competitors with McLaren F1. It was, you know, and this was, this was a time when the the refinement and finesse of European cars was kind of getting squeezed out in favor of real, like, performance-oriented numbers, how fast it can go, how... And the cars were getting more and more bloated-looking. I mean, they were less drivable by a normal person and much more just an exaggerated and again, sort of like proxy for masculinity and gauche richness.
1: And it wasn't because people were chasing performance. Like uh, the cars had to be bigger
0: and sturdier to do a certain kind of acceleration or hit hit certain speeds. Each one that came along needed to be faster than the last one. And Mm -hmm. it, it was a real competition and it wasn't just faster around a racetrack. It was top speed, top horsepower and, and, it did introduce again, a world where you could be a small company and start out and build, build one of these cars by hand and produce them in limited numbers. And, um, you know, and I, I guess be making a beautiful thing that did accomplish tremendous feats. Uh, but the Bugatti company did not survive the, or this iteration of it didn't survive because of the, ins and outs of economics. We had a a recession in the mid nineties and, uh, Artioli got a little bit ahead of himself and he bought the Lotus company, which also was kind of in a period. Speaking of James Bond cars. That's right. Uh, That's the
1: Lotus that goes underwater in Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah. They shouldn't have just been making cars that go underwater. What's, what's even the
0: market for that? Well, the, that, that James Bond movie sold an awful lot of uh, Lotus Esprits, which were a wedge shaped design that looked like the Lamborghini Countach, but was more affordable. Um, and those were iconic cars of the day, right? Precisely because of that James Bond film. And it was a super kind of sleek, curved thing. Yeah, they were They were not, they didn't qualify, I don't think, as super cars uh, because they weren't so top, end, or top uh, speed focused, but they were certainly beautiful cars.
1: I just want to say that I had a, a roommate in college freshman year. I think he was from like, Sunnyside, Washington or somewhere around there who drove a Saab and he was always bragging that a Saab was the car of James Bond hmm. and nobody really knew what he meant. I guess sobs are the car Bond drove in some of the eighties novels written by other hands, like after Fleming's death. Sobs. Can you imagine Fleming rolling over at his grave? now that James
0: <laughs> Bond drives a Saab 900? Well, there was that period of middle James Bonds, I guess, between Roger Moore and what, uh, what I guess the, resurrection of the, of scary bond.
1: And they brought back the Aston Martin too.
0: Yeah. The, the Pierce Brosnan where bond was driving BMWs and I guess whatever company would throw money at it. Exactly. Exactly.
1: And they could become transparent. Yeah. Again, I don't even know what the market is for
0: that. A transparent car. I would drive one. Although you'd be constantly getting in wrecks, people would be changing lanes right into you.
1: Every time you roll down the window, you see like a window appear with like. Oh, some, your face Some guy's head just floating. <laughs> the Cheshire cat. <laughs> Flicking a cigarette and then, then he disappears again. So- So what happened to Bugatti? The, so, uh, it, it's dead again?
0: Again dead. And- um, And now I have to think of a product that died twice and came back. And then, then the Bugatti name was just kind of floating around until 1998, a few short years later- where it was purchased, the name and, and intellectual property. Oh, oh, and the, I'm sorry, before that, the EB110, which had been a successful sports car, after Bugatti dissolved, the remaining frames and parts, you know, the the uh, all the stuff that was on the parts shelves actually got sold to another company who continued to improve upon and manufacture this but they didn't call it the Bugatti? It was no, it was, they, they changed the name to some, you know, uh, the, whoever the owner of that company was, the Bob, Bob Jones, uh, Jones Eddy.
1: Probably, yeah, probably Bob Jones.
0: No, I think it was a, <laughs> from, the, from, the, from university. the
3: university.
1: Yeah, as long as no two people of different races ride in this car, it's a two-seater.
0: It's a, it was a German, uh, like, hot rod car company, and I'm sure someone will uh, write us and tell me the name, but I'm not interested in it. If you, <laughs> you want to do that, just write, Ken Jennings at Gmail, and then Ken will filter that for Ken me. Ken just loves sports cars so much. <laughs> but then it was, and I think maybe predictably, purchased by the Volkswagen conglomerate. And Volkswagen kind of went on a buying spree during this era. Oh yeah, they own like Audi now. and They own not just Audi, and, and obviously Porsche and Volkswagen have a long relationship, but they bought Bentley and Rolls-Royce they bought a lot of what you would think of as prestige, yeah, uh, car brand names, and continue to m- manufacture those cars. But they're owned by the overarching, multi-tentacled bond villain, some, which is the Volkswagen company. Some
1: evil company falsifying diesel emissions.
0: So from Vo- its German lair. That's right. They're in there. Like, how can we take over the whole world of manufacturing fancy cars? And they own Lamborghini, I think, too, now, um, Volkswagen. But they decided they needed a platform for expressing themselves and expressing their, uh, their most refined technology. Couldn't they just get a Pinterest or something? Well, I'm sure they do have multiple Pinterests. If you go online and Google Pinterest but it, uh, Volkswagen, you'll certainly find them.
1: But you're going you're to tell me these guys wanted to
0: stimulate their creativity by... By rebooting Bugatti. By rebooting Bugatti as a showcase for peak auto technology. And I mean, this is the crowd that really looks down on American car manufacturers as just apes. Just big, (laughs) big apes putting uh, five liter V8s, which are now 50 year old, 60 year old technology. We're still just sort of tweaking them and cramming them into the front end of Mustangs. And people keep buying them here because we have big, wide highways. And uh, I think if you join the United States Army, you are given a Mustang?
1: Yeah, I think they just, if you have a Camaro you always wanted, they will just pull it right up the second you sign,
0: it appears. Well, in fact, if you are in the military, you can get 0% uh, loans uh, to buy Camaros and Mustangs. It's absolutely a relationship that banks and car dealers have with newly minted enlisted people with
1: and, the children of the working poor. What a great system. Yeah,
0: it is. If you, and and if you do go to any of these joint bases around the company, you will see so many new uh, cars because, you know, service people have guaranteed income for the length, exactly of, their service. The length
1: of, a, of a car
0: loan. And so the car loan people just know, ex- you know, they just know exactly how to pencil it out. But they don't have, uh, windshield wipers on the headlights. So <laughs> no, they don't. What's even the point? And if you are a private in the U.S. Army, you cannot afford a Bugatti. Uh, yeah, so this company already owns all these luxury brands. And Volkswagen How is, do they distinguish, like what's, you know, Bugatti
1: just has to be Bentley
0: only more so, I guess. Well, and they, they are positioning all these cars for different buyers, right? Your Volkswagen buyer is a different person than your Audi buyer. Uh, and they share a lot of technologies with one another. They will, they have the ability as a giant company to spend R&D dollars building these engines that then they can sort of modify and spread around their various brands. And famously, uh, one of these engines is the Volkswagen VR6, which is a motor that was, that was made to be put into like a Volkswagen Jetta sideways uh, because they wanted to put, six cylinders in a little car that was sort of built to have a four cylinder motor. And they realized if they turned the motor sideways, they could fit a bigger displacement engine in these smaller cars. And if you think about a V8, it's shaped like a V. It has four cylinders on each side. Hence the name. And they, they come down to connect at the bottom of the V and turn a single crankshaft. Mm -hmm. But they require quite a bit of space. If you put the V out at an angle where it's going to where the motion of the pistons is going to be in balance with itself. And what Volkswagen figured out was a way to offset the cylinders so that they could be combined into a much smaller block that had a single cylinder head across the whole top so that the radius of the cylinders kind of overlapped with one another so that they weren't a, they weren't a big spread apart V with two whole like V shaped blocks of iron. They were a single block. But the cylinders were like offset. And there's efficiency advantages to having. Oh, it's a smaller, a smaller motor and it's, um, lighter Mm -hmm. obviously. And these motors produced considerable horsepower. I actually have a Volkswagen Jetta parked in front of this house that has a VR6 motor. You know, they're, they're not expensive little cars, but they really get up and go.
3: Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24/7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musicians' award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy, so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musicians' Premium Plus package at musician.com/slash. Start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musiciancom slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot slash start. What
1: about the Bugatti? Like, what's different?
0: Well, so what happened is Volkswagen bought this company and they decided they were going to make the ultimate supercar. And they started working on it in 1998 when they purchased the company. And they styled, uh, they had a, a a man by the name of Giorgetto Guigiaro. How do you, how in the world would you pronounce these Italian names? Uh, Giorgetto Guigiardo Sure. Let's call it that. Uh, who was a famous Italian stylist. And he designed um, what in their estimation is a beautiful supercar. And Volkswagen worked... They took their VR6 concept, but they made a W-shaped motor. Wah. And the W-shaped motors are things that date back even to World War I, but people trying to get as much motor as they can in a single space. and It is,
1: it, it is the widest
0: letter. A W is a wide, is a wide letter. And if you, have, if you have two banks of cylinders and it's called a V, if you had three banks of cylinders, you're hard-pressed to think of a letter that it looks like more than a W. It's not actually two V's. It's sort of like a, I don't know what you would call it. It's looks like a bird, two cylinders on the sides and one up the middle. Yes. Volkswagen worked on one of these called the W18, which had three six cylinder motors all grafted together. This was an enormous motor and a powerful one, but it couldn't, uh, like there wasn't a shifter in the world that could handle it. Right? <laughs> it was some kind of, it, w- it ended up being impractical and they changed their tune to the W16 motor, which instead of being three banks of six was now two banks of eight. The thing that makes it a W is that these two banks of eight are offset in such a way the eight cylinders are offset so that it ends up functioning somewhat as a W. It's not really a W so much as it is a, an invention of their engineering minds. They were just out of letters. An, exp- an expression of their confusion. You couldn't make it an X. You can invent engines. You just can't invent letters. So they, they settled on this 16-cylinder motor, which had four turbos and was eight liters. So if you think of a, about a Mustang 5.0, this would be a Bugatti 8.0. And, uh, they built a car called the Veyron, which sort of surprised the car world. Here comes this automobile from a company that everyone thought was long gone and no one had really, I mean, when the, when the Bugatti Veyron appeared on the scene, I had not been aware of the, the mid nineties reboot of it. And it just seemed like this was a car company from the thirties that had resurrected out of nowhere. Time traveler. And this car arrived on the scene and it was $2 million, which even by luxury or even by the supercar standards was an extraordinary chunk of change.
1: Sure. I mean, you can take a zero off of that and still buy a pretty nice top of the line
0: European sports car. Yeah. A $250,000 car would still be extravagant.
1: I feel like the uh, deposit for one of the, you could buy a Lamborghini for the deposit for one of these cars.
0: Well, uh, not untrue, but this car was extraordinary. It still holds the fastest car, fastest production car record. How fast can a Veyron go? So a Veyron's, like, its award-winning top speed was established at 267.8 267.8 miles an hour. Wow. You'd think you'd they get a J.D.
1: Power and Associates award. Do they, do you think they got a J.D. I'm Power sure, and Associates award? I'm sure award? they did
0: in addition to like blowing everybody's <laughs> mind. They're in the Guinness Book of World <laughs> Record. Um, no, I'm uh,
1: sorry. I only listened to J.D. Power and Associates. Is I, don't, that, I don't care about Guinness.
0: I don't remember reading the Consumer Reports uh, <laughs> issue on, on this
1: car. Goes 278 miles an hour. <laughs> Windows may stick a little.
0: Uh, it, it got a black circle for uh, fuel economy. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a, you know, this is obviously, it had been for a long time a point of pride in supercar manufacturers, this top speed. And once Veyron took it, and that, and that happened in 2010, for eight years it has, it has reigned supreme. And they didn't make very many, right? No. I mean, they're super, obviously super expensive. How how many people really can afford to buy these cars? Um, but they are not, it's not a limited, they're not limited to 15 a year. I mean, they do sell to a certain type of extraordinarily rich and uh, one might say... Ostentatious? Ostentatious person. So they've... They've made, uh, I think of the Veyron, they made 400 of them and sold them. Although I've heard they may have lost money on each one. Well, it's true. Uh, this uh, Again, this is like an ego trip, not only for the people that buy them. Right, but for the people who make them for too. For the people who make them. And, and the scuttlebutt is that they cost more to make than they can sell them for.
1: Why would you not just add a million dollars to the price then? I mean-
0: I, feel, uh, I, almost think, I almost think it would be better. Like, sweet, this is now a $3 million car? And probably they should now, uh, because, well, so the Veyron sort of ran its course. Bugatti understood that they needed to, if they were going to stay on top of their game, they needed to continue to evolve. And from my standpoint, looking at it as a car aficionado, I mean, they are very interesting looking cars, but they have, um, they have a little bit of the Edsel problem. Ford Motor Company in the 1950s invested a tremendous amount of money in their new Edsel brand and all the technology, they were pouring all their latest technology into this car and Edsels came out and did not sell at all. And a big part of, of, uh, the reason Edsels didn't sell is that the grill of an Edsel, which I think was meant to evoke like a horse's, uh, butt, no, a horse's collar uh, whatever the, those are called. Uh, oh, like the, the, the yoke or that's whatever. That's right. Um, what it looked like to people was a toilet. Uh, <laughs> the grill of an Edsel looked like a toilet seat, and people didn't find it attractive. And so you say the Bugatti just looks like a really sleek bidet? It's a, it's a beautiful car and super sleek, but the grill, again, is a kind of bidet-shaped uh, nose that I've... Uh, that uh, that makes it very distinctive, but I find it's a little off
1: It does seem to have the thing where it's got to have novelty above all. You know, somebody, by putting $2 million down for a car, it cannot be something that's vaguely, slightly distinguishable from a no. Lamborghini or a Porsche. Like, no,
0: you don't want it to look like a Toyota Supra.
1: So you have to come up with some idea that is not just sleek and beautiful, but also a sleek and beautiful car in a way that, no other car has ever decided to be sleek and beautiful, which is kind of a tall order.
0: Yeah, and 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 it, these things are easily copyable. I mean, there are a lot of Ford cars now that have a grill that's very similar to an Aston Martin, mm-hmm. um, which there wasn't anything keeping Ford from doing it. Uh, but you would be a pretty weird car company if you put a toilet seat on the front of your car like Bugatti. And they've done a great job with it. I mean, it's obviously, it's very futuristic looking. But, you know, it's futuristic to us. Right.
1: It's the way that, uh, you know, when Tomorrowland opened, it was supposed to be the future of 1986. And And when futurelings look at a
0: Veyron, they're going to say, we've got flying toilet seats. Why would you, this doesn't look futuristic to us.
1: It's impossible to tell what will actually look like a car of the future and what will look like a just total try-hard
0: attempt to make something look different. Well, and if you look at the Ford GT40 that was developed in the mid 60s, it still looks incredibly current and established in 1965 a design language that influenced every supercar that followed. So there are cars that accomplish this. Uh and maybe the Veyron is one. The Veyron is uh, is a hilarious car. It's hilariously ostentatious and in fact, one of the ways in which it became a uh, pop culture phenomenon is that in 2010, a man in Texas by the name of Andy House, who ran a kind of um, exotic car salvage yard, bought one and um, drove it into the ocean. (laughs) And it was... It was an event that – Like on of, purpose or was he just drunk? Well, so it, it was an event that went viral because some dudes, just a couple of like ding were driving along the highway and they see this car, which is super like exotic and fancy looking. And so they start videotaping it. And uh, they made this video of themselves just sounding like total – you know, dimwits like, Oh my God, look at that car. Oh. And the one guy's like, dude, it's a Lamborghini. And the other guy's like, Oh, I don't know. And he's like, it's definitely a Lamborghini. And while they're filming this car and talking about it, it just, it's on a, it's on a side road, an access road. It just veers off and we watch it crash into the ocean. And the guys, you know, the, the two dudes are like, Oh my God, no way. And the one guy swears a couple of times and, so Andy House makes an insurance claim on his million dollar car because he's insured it for two million dollars and claims that uh, at first he claimed that he was, he got distracted by a pelican. And then later it was, he changed his story and he was looking for his phone or something like that. But there was this video evidence that he was just driving along and just turned and just drove it into the ocean. So, drove, so
1: we don't know why he did it?
0: Well, he drove it into the ocean at the one place along that stretch of road where you could just drive straight oh. into the ocean. Like, And so it was revealed that it was an insurance Insurance scam. fraud. And not only did he not get the, I guess they gave him some money, but then he has to repay it and they sent him to jail.
1: I hope he had to make some settlement to Pelicans for, well, for, it, for besmirching <laughs> their good name.
0: I hope he had it, to like build a wildlife refuge or something. In this country right now, you have to say some really awful things about a thing, a pelican, or a person to ever actually be sued for libel. Finally, Alex Jones is being sued, and he said some terrible things. It's a really noisy news cycle. You really have to say something awful about pelicans to get on cable news now. There's just too much going on. That's right. Well, and pelicans don't really have that good of representation. They don't have a Michael Cohen. Well, I mean, they did nine Pe- eleven. Pelicans did do nine eleven. I think that's been documented. Now we'll now we'll see if we get sued. Um, so Bugatti in trying to keep up with the Joneses, which in this case is just themselves, uh, updated the Varon and, uh, that is where we come to the name of this episode. We finally did it. The Bugatti Chiron or Chiron or Chiron. I said like Gary
1: Chiron? Chiron. Like Gary Chiron from the best lead singer of Van Halen? (laughs) Uh, so I, I uh, think it's supposed to be like, if it was named for the centaur from Greek
0: myth, it would be Chiron. The Chiron. But it is in fact named for a car racer, a race car driver who... Oh, uh, it's named for a guy? It's named for a guy. Just as the Veyron was named for a man who was one of the race car drivers of Bugatti in their classic era. So the, the, the Chiron... The Chiron. Chiron? How, how did you pronounce it, Chiron? I said sh- Chiron. Chiron. Okay, let's Chiron? call it the Bugatti Chiron. Okay, uh, was named for Louis Chiron. Let's call it that. There we go. Uh, who was a driver for Bugatti, and the Veyron was named for uh, another driver named Pierre Veyron. We don't name cars after people in this country. Well, because a lot of a lot of car companies don't have race car drivers in their lineage. And I think it's, it's part of a callback and, and another one of the callbacks is that the Bugatti company now is, and this was in reference to your earlier comment, what is the connection between Bugatti of present day and Bugatti of past? Yes. Um, Their company headquarters is in the home of the Bugatti family, which they, they were able to buy and translate into a, into a headquarters. They evicted surviving Bugattis. I don't know if the Bugatti still owned it or if it had become just a place where you could get wheatgrass juice enemas. But was it, the, it was the, the site of the workshop of the original 30s era Bugattis? No, in fact, the Bugatti company, portions of it did survive, but only as a manufacturer of aircraft parts. Huh. And uh, the company that bought the remnants of the Bugatti aircraft factory still owned the manufacturing plant of historic Bugatti and they didn't want to give it up because they were still making boat motors or something there. And they were like, no, screw you Volkswagen. We're going to keep this, this factory. So Volkswagen had to build a new factory, but very close to the vacation home of the Bugatti family.
1: It kind of seems like you're anti numbers money ball, but like, are there amazing stats for the Bugatti Chiron that would
0: blow us away. So here's the situation with the Chiron. They've tuned this W16, like quad turbocharged motor to the point that it has 1500 horsepower. And... It's like all, twice what a Formula One car has. Or, yeah, I mean, just like, it's extraordinary. If you had a car right now that had 200 horsepower, if you know, if you had a little light car that had 200 horsepower, you'd be flying. So... Uh, the Veyron still holds the land speed record for a production car because the Curon has not yet done a speed test. And partly it's because... It's going too fast for anyone to measure. It is going too fast for any tire that is currently manufactured. <laughs> At what they estimate its top speed will be, there is no tire that could safely... Operate under those pressures. Yeah, I saw that. There's no, they don't announce the top speed,
1: but the 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 car will stop working at 268 or something like that.
0: It's it's electronically um, capped at a certain speed where where the highest rated tire in the world can like hang together. It's because otherwise you would go back in time. Now, what it does hold is uh, the record for fastest time from zero to 400 kilometers an hour, which is 250 miles an hour, and then back to zero. So that's a different test. Are you allowed to just plow it into a wall or do you have to use brakes? No, you got to slam on the brakes. And so like, this is a thing that, uh, this is again, a test that tests a kind of European sophistication, which is, yeah, you can get up to 400 kilometers an hour, which is, you have to be a. Uh, you have to have a lot of power. But to get back to zero requires a, a completely other level of refinement. It's almost a Zen thing. The journey is to return to nothing. That's right. And so the Chiron holds that record, but it, does not, it has not yet been allowed to demonstrate to the world its true capabilities.
1: Do we know what the number is? How fast can it get to 400 kph and then back to zero? It
0: goes up to... 250 miles an hour in like 30 seconds and then to go up to 400 kilometers an hour and back down, it's not more than 40 seconds, I think, or, you know, around 40 seconds. Mm -hmm. So it gets up there and then, you know, I, I mean, I don't, I can't imagine stopping a car from 250 miles an hour to zero in 10 seconds. Where's that energy going? It's really bananas. Heat on the tires, I guess. (laughs) I mean, and, you know, the brakes have to be made out of some kind of incredible ceramic super material.
1: They were saying that literally everything is made from titanium because, you you know, you just got to trim little milligrams off wherever you can. It has to be
0: super light, super, super refined. I mean, just think of it at that speed. If anything goes wrong, I mean, anything, if you can't get the radio in tune, I mean, you're just going so fast, um, that it's, in it's inconceivable that anything could go wrong. And I, and they estimate that the Chiron will, Chiron. the Chiron will, uh, have a top speed of a hundred or 288 miles an hour. It
1: gets, uh, it gets seven miles per gallon city, about twice that highway. <laughs> The thing I loved was it's got a 26-gallon tank, and it can empty it in 460 seconds.
0: I mean, think about that.
1: You can you can use all your gas in seven minutes.
0: I mean, you do have 16 cylinders.
1: You have to be driving really fast and moving your seat up and back, though. <laughs> and turn on the heat. Full blast. <laughs> Electric windows up and down. Yeah, you have to do all the windows. <laughs> you have to have the ACM heat on. It's crazy. But still, seven and a half minutes.
0: Yeah, well, and that, I mean, even if you're not driving it in, into the ocean... Um, that's going to limit your range. And
1: that concludes the Bugatti Chiron. Entry 162.EC0911, certificate number 24968, in the omnibus. Listeners, we certainly hope for your own good and protection that social media does not exist in your era. Oh, if, if we could wish one thing for you, it would be that. Not a, not a $2 million sports car.
0: No. The one boon we would grant. Not a giant popcorn bag full of human food. Because you can't buy happiness. You still, in your day, will not be able to buy happiness any more than you can do it now.
1: The way to the way to get to happiness is free, and it's just to cancel all your social media.
0: <laughs> cancel your magazine subscriptions. The hunker down. Consumer
1: reports. But we have not been able to do so. We are still products of our time. You can find at Omnibus Project on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. John is at John Roderick on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Ken Jennings on Twitter. We were available to email, we were real men of the people. Just contact us at Omnibus Project at HowStuffWorks.com, as many did in our era. Mm-hmm. There was a, a Facebook group of uh, called the Futurelings. Mm-hmm. People went to Facebook, typed in the word Futurelings mm-hmm. for some reason, and if they spelled it correctly. They found this delightful form, a community of like-minded uh, men and women.
0: In fact, you, Futurelings, may be the progeny of people who met in the Futurelings uh, Facebook social group, because it's, as I understand it, increasingly a very hot dating site. It's a, basically a singles site at this point. It may be. The reason you're listening to this program is that you are our legacy, our, our children, basically. Children of our
1: children. We led to all the reproduction that made the future possible. Mm -hmm. People would listen to the podcast with a a like-minded member of the uh, opposite sex, if that was what they were into, and Mm -hmm. just let their imagination go. If it was an hour podcast.
0: That's long enough. That's for most people. That's
1: plenty of time.
0: And in fact, from our vantage point in uh, your distant past or their ultimate future, uh, we have no idea how long we'll continue to make this podcast. Uh, And in fact, this could be our final episode. We are chronologically ignorant. That's right. And we hope that day never comes. But if it does, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final one. But if Providence allows, and we don't get so beaten down by social media that we just decide to give it all up and go live in Montana. Or drive into the sea. Drive into the sea for the insurance. We hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.